if I had access to words in the English language to describe how happy I am to be here, I would use them. And I don't, so take that for what it is. I am so happy to be with you this morning. Um, there's been a lot that's happened in 10 years since I was here, and uh, it, you are a church that loved me well through the darkest times of my life, and that prayed for me. My children are indebted to you and don't even know it because you prayed for them. And um, I love you guys. And it is so wonderful to see so many familiar faces and so many new faces here. And I am just glad to be here. So thanks for welcoming us back. It's been a long time, and uh, we are just so grateful to be here. Uh, as Tim so uh, kindly mentioned and introduced me, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Darren Stone. I served as the minister here for a few years, and uh, I currently serve as the minister to the North Carolina State Capitol with Ministry to State. And I shared a little bit about that ministry in the Sunday School Hour, and we will be here for the potluck afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more about it. I've got some information I can share with you, and if you're just curious to know a little bit more about the ministry, I'd uh, love to tell you more about that. But we are here now at this time in the service to plumb the depths of God's Word. So if you have a copy of your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. A familiar passage to many of you, Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 42 and read through chapter 3, verse 10. And what I really want for us to consider this morning as we zero in on God's word is how God builds his church, how he goes about seeking and saving and redeeming lost people and growing his people in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when we think about missions or think about missionaries, whether we're talking about church planting or campus ministries or sending people to be ministers and missionaries to the government or to the very ends of the earth, we have to never forget that it is God who is the one who is the missionary. God is the one who is the missionary. He is the king who is on the move to save a people unto himself and to grow them into the grace and knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we are, are merely Christ's ambassadors. We are the vessel through whom God speaks and uses to draw people to himself. And so at the end of the day, each person who has tasted and seen the goodness of God, and that has led them to repent of their sins and and place all of their trust and all of their hope in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Each person who can be described in that way is a person who is also Christ's ambassador. Another beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so we are going to zero in on two scenes from the book of Acts this morning where God's mission is on display and consider how, as a church, we can go about serving in such a way as well, joining God in his redemptive work. So before we do so, let's take a moment to pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you needy this morning. 
we need you to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to behold the wonderful things from your word. You say that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and that it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in the way of righteousness so that we might be equipped for every good work. So we pray this morning as we hear your word read and preached that we might not be merely hearers of it, but also doers of it. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. One of the most noteworthy areas of focus in our lives, in our culture today, has to do with questions of personal identity, who you are. Questions like, who am I? And why am I here? Where am I going? Why does it matter? Everyone, consciously or subconsciously, has to wrestle with those questions. But before you can even begin to answer them or address them fairly, you have to consider under which authority you answer those questions. What is the authority or Upon whom is the authority upon what you base your life? So, for instance, if you are someone who comes from a traditional culture, a person's individual identity isn't going to be so defined individually, but it's going to be defined collectively. They're going to see themselves primarily not as an individual, but as a member of a community or a member of a family. And they're going to live their life under the authority of the norms and expectations of that culture, that family, or that tribe. So a person wouldn't consider 
trying to make sense of their life without considering it under that scope. Their parents wouldn't say to them, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. Whatever it is that you want to be, that can be your focus in life. They would never even think in those terms. Because your path in life, your, your job, and perhaps even who you marry, uh, would be mapped out for you by your parents or by your elders. And so you just don't think in terms of having the freedom to chart out your own path to be your most authentic self and serve your own needs. You think about the needs of the community and the well-being of the community first. But in a more secular, Western culture, it's the opposite, right? The needs and desires and the feelings of the individual are supreme. So this is why Facebook has 71 different gender identities and why people may live at significant distance from their families and in many respects detached from them. And they think in individual terms, what is going to bring me the most self-fulfillment? What is the path that I ought to choose in my life? A person goes off to college and they have the opportunity to choose between a hundred and some odd different majors. And they can pick any of them. You can map out your own course. And it has to do with much of our society, which says the customer is always right. And so the businesses cater to the individual needs. But when we plumb the depths of the scripture, we discover that there's a third way, right? A third way, a way that isn't so uh, beholden to the needs and to a corporate identity and isn't so individualistic, but the galvanizing force under which we live our life, the authority of our life is the one true and living God himself as he reveals himself in his word. So for the Christian, our life is oriented around God. And we answer those questions of identity, of who I am and why I'm here and where I'm going and why it matters under that identity and that scope and under his authority. How we spend our time and money and energy and resources, the choices we make have to do with what God reveals about himself and what he reveals about us and what he reveals about his world in his word. And so what is the Christian's identity? Who are we? I would suggest to you, in a nutshell, it's something like this. The Christian is someone who belongs to a community of redeemed sinners who are committed to Christ and their neighbors by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. The Christian belongs to a community of redeemed sinners who are committed to Christ and their neighbors by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And whenever Christians, as a church and as individuals, have collectively lived with a sense of consciousness, they have been people who have lived on mission. They have joined God in what he is doing in seeking and saving a people unto himself. They have joined him by extending the grace and the glory of God to a broken and decaying world and bringing that message of the gospel to the world. So why is the church to move outward? 
Because God moves outward. Think about what Jesus came to do. He came to reveal the Father to the world. He came to be a ransom for many. He came to save his people. He came to preach the good news. There are innumerable other things that we could talk about that Jesus has done, but the point is this. Jesus was always moving outward. He wasn't just this cluster of him and 12 other guys. He was constantly moving outward towards other people so that they might know the joy and the freedom of having their sins plunged into the depths of the sea and cast off as far as the east as from the west and remembered no more and having the full holiness and righteousness of Christ credited to them so they can stand before him with that great confidence of knowing that they don't stand upon their own record, but they stand upon Christ's record given to them in the gospel. And they have that freedom and joy of knowing that and living in such a way so they pursue his glory and they love their neighbors and they want their neighbors who don't know him to know the same grace and the same mercy that they have received in the gospel as well. So what we've just read here in Acts chapter 2 and 3 are a couple of snapshots of this, of how God works in his church and how we can join with God in his mission. So I want to explore these two sections of Acts, the Acts chapter 2 section and the Acts chapter 3 section from an altitude of about 35,000 feet at about 500 miles per hour. And then I'm going to give you a few practical hooks to take with you. So first of all, I want to look at the Acts chapter 2 section, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is a community not just of sinners, a community of redeemed sinners. And there are a whole bunch of important parts that we find in this passage that kind of knit their life together. And I want to look at them with you. There are six of them, briefly. Number one, they are people who are anchored in the truth, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So this was a collective life. This was a church that was bound together, not simply by common interests or their stage in life or their economic level or their hobbies or whatever the case may be, all of those things, as important as they are, were secondary to the most important thing, the most important one who bound them together. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. When you punctured them, the blood that you saw was the blood of Christ, no matter who they were, no matter where they came from, because they were all knit together by the blood of Christ. And what they were is they were a group of people who devoted themselves to knowing him as he revealed himself to the apostles, which, of course, is what we now find in God's word. And so they were committed to sound doctrine. They were anchored in truth. Secondly, they were not only anchored in the truth, but they shared life together. They had a life that was knit together. The great 18th century theologian Matthew Henry once wrote that when we take God for our God, we take his people for our people. When we take God for our God, we take his people for our people. I had a pastor when I was growing up who said repeatedly that 
being in the church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. And that's, of course, true, right? Because there are many people who go to church and have some life in the church who don't know the Lord. That's the sad reality of it. But it's an incomplete truth. Because the fact of the matter is that when Christ saves you into himself, he saves you into other people who have been saved into himself, and he knits us together. He's building his church not just a bunch of isolated individuals, but people who would thrive by being connected with one another. That vine and the branches thing is a, is a beautiful imagery. And just this picture of the fact that nothing grows in isolation, it grows in connection, right? And so we grow being connected with one another in the local church, and that's what these people were like. They shared life together. Thirdly, they were generous to one another. You saw them distributing to each person as they had need. Now let me say this. This is not some kind of socialism here. This isn't the government coming in and coercing them at the penalty of imprisonment or fine to give to one another and make sure everybody is, is equal, some kind of coercive act of the government. So don't let anybody tell you that this is some kind of apologetic text for socialism. It's not. That's a bunch of baloney. What's happening here is these people are compelled by grace. They're not under compulsion of force. They're under the compulsion of grace to stop being greedy and stop serving their own needs and to look amongst themselves, this body of people that they have been saved into, and to help one another as they had need. And at this particular point in history, when this passage was written, if a person became a follower of Christ, they could for all intents and purposes be expelled from their family and disinherited. And they lost everything. There was a cost to following Jesus. And so they had people in their community who had needs, just as there are people here in this church who have needs. And they sought to help extend grace and supply those needs because they were compelled by the grace that they had received, the mercy that they received that they did not deserve or earn. Number four, they shared meals together. Doesn't that sound good? Let's do that after the service. Let's all have a meal, right? Everybody likes to eat, and there is a um, kind of a debate amongst theologians as to whether or not this is discussing communion, you know, the Lord's Supper, or whether it's talking about just a more informal common meal together. So I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'll just let you be the judge on that one to figure it out. But the fact of the matter is that either way, a meal is about communion. I mean, they gathered together to commune with one another. And whether they communed at the Lord's table with each other before the Lord or they communed together over a table just enjoying a meal together as it seems like the passage is talking about towards the end there, they are gathering together over a meal. Now, some of the best times that 
I have in life, or of course, while eating, but especially while eating with another person, you know, eating with others, connecting with people over a meal, because it sort of breaks down those barriers, and you're able to open up and share your life with one another and enjoy each other. Uh, we did this last night at David Allen's house. We're going to do it here in just a few moments and enjoying and connecting with one another that way. The joy of the Lord comes out in relationship and that's what they were doing together. Now number five here, in addition to those, they were praying together. When this group of followers of Christ got together, they did not neglect gathered worship they made gathered worship a priority. Their, their lives revolved around it. It wasn't something they just inserted whenever there was time for it. That was the priority of their life. And they never neglected prayer. Prayer was central to what they did together. Because prayer redirected their anxious, wandering, floundering, broken lives and drew them back to their Savior and reminded them of their need and their dependence upon Him. And they cast their needs and they cast their cares before a Lord who cared for them and continues to care for us. And finally, number six, they were joyful, right? There was something about their life uh, being connected with one another that filled them with joy. You cannot keep the wonder of the gospel on your own. It won't happen. You must be connected with God's people. And being connected with one another filled them with the joy that they all shared together and experienced together in Christ. So they built their lives upon praying with and for one another, worshiping together, communing together, serving one another and praying and their life was joyful as a result. So it's easy to hear that and go, okay, well these are the six things we need to work on as a church. Let's say the benediction and run out the door and let's get working on that for 2020. Those are things that we should strive for, that the local church should strive for. But that's not the point. Because the point is that these things happen organically in a church when the hearts of the people are reoriented from the worship of self and the worship of things to the worship of God. When their hope and their identity is founded on Christ alone. And when that happens collectively, these things begin to happen in a local church. And then guess what? The church is this beautiful countercultural community of redeemed sinners as a light in a city and in a nation and in a world. And God has a way of using that to add to his number, add to the number daily those who are being saved. There's something wildly attractive about a gospel-centered, Christ-shaped, biblically-molded community of redeemed sinners that has an outward thrust to it. Because the world isn't doing this. That's not what the world is doing. 
It's weird in the best way possible that a church looks like this. And it happens as our hearts are tuned into him. It has an outward thrust, an outward vision. But that kind of begs the question, doesn't it? What about the rest of our lives? Because tomorrow is coming and you're going to go to work or you're going to go to school or you're going to do whatever it is that you do in your ordinary life and we're not going to be gathered together like we are now. So what do we do then? How, how about our ordinary life? Well, that's where the Acts chapter 3 passage fits in. It shows us a little something there about how we can live outwardly in that respect. So in Acts chapter 3, what we have here is a very ordinary scene. Our lives are mostly living in the midst of the ordinary. And ordinarily, Peter and John would go to the temple at the ninth hour. So the ninth hour would have been 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And that was the stated time for prayer. That's just what they did. And obviously in the passage you read, here that there are others doing the same thing. How many times in Peter and John's life did they make that trek to the temple during the hour of prayer? A hundred? Two hundred? I mean, who knows? A lot. Same trek you make here. How many times have you been here? Or some other church? A lot. Probably most of you. It's part of the ordinary rhythm of their lives. And as par for the course, they would walk to the temple and there would be this man who had been paralyzed from birth read in the next chapter that he was somewhere in his 40s. So for as, as long as I've been alive, for instance, he was paralyzed. Never walked a, a single day in his life. And, and he would have friends who would, who would take him to the outskirts of the temple at the gate and leave him there and he would ask for money. That's what his life was. And maybe you can picture this. There's a intersection in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, where I live, and, that I drive through frequently. And there's almost always a man there who is sitting on a chair, and he kind of rocks back and forth, and he's got a cardboard sign, and he's asking for help. He's asking for money. And he does this every day. I mean, almost every time I pass by that intersection. And I wonder, you know, what... What is his life about? What is he thinking about? How did he get into this position? How did he find himself there? Do, what, what about the people in his life? I mean, I, I just wonder about him and what his life is like and what his life is about. And we see people like this in, in our community and that's their life. And... That man that I see when I pass by him doesn't seem to have a whole lot of options. And this man in this story didn't have a whole lot of options. He was a beggar. He was an outcast. He was disabled. And I'm not sure if you caught it in the passage, but Luke, the writer of Acts, mentions the temple in these ten verses in Acts chapter 3 six different times. Six times he mentions the temple. And that's an important point. I'm going to circle back to it in just a minute. But the point is, is that this man would never enter the temple. 43 years of his life, he sees these people coming and going into the temple. He never 
enters the temple. Well, why is that? Well, obviously he was unable to physically, but you kind of wonder, well, why didn't his friends just take him into the temple? I mean, why draw, that just seems kind of callous. Why just, why drop him off at the gate outside? Why not just take him into the temple? Well, the reason why is because he wasn't able to physically, but he also wasn't able to spiritually. Because if you look back in Leviticus chapter 21, a passage I'm sure many of you have read in the past week, Leviticus chapter 21, right? You discover that someone with physical deformities is not permitted to enter the temple. And given his condition, given that he was paralyzed from birth, there's no reason to believe that he would have ever thought that he would enter the temple. Like he was always just going to be out there. The only way in which he would enter the temple is if something miraculous happened. And so his life is basically sitting in a tri- high traffic area asking for money. And so by nature and by choice, he's alienated from God. By nature, he's alienated from God. He, he's not paralyzed because of any kind of personal sin that he committed or his parents committed or anything like that. There's a whole passage about that. I think in John where uh, uh, you know, Jesus talks about that. It, he's not culpable for that, but he's still a sinner. I mean, he's still a man who is uh, prone to look within himself for the answers rather than outside to God. He's prone to seek something to shape his life around and give him an identity and give him salvation from his, from his deepest, darkest fears rather than God, just like you and I are. And he's outside of the temple physically. He's outside of the temple spiritually. And it's going to take a miracle for him to ever enter it. But that's what God does, right? God inserts himself into this man's story and life and circumstances and body and soul. And he begins to rise up and he begins to walk and he begins to leap and praise God. When Peter insisted that this man look at him and look at John, he thought something ordinary was going to happen. He thought that he was going to receive some kind of handout because that's what he received from people. But instead, Peter instructs him, not on his own authority, but upon the name and upon the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to get up and walk. And for the very first time in his life, he begins to feel the sensation of strength in his legs. Can you imagine that? He begins to feel strength where there was only limpness and weakness and no feeling of anything at all. And he not only has strength in his legs, but he's able to just get up and walk and leap you know how infants and toddlers are. I mean, they, at first they don't 
move at all. And then they begin to crawl a little bit. And then they begin to stand up and then they fall down. And then they begin to stand up and take two steps and they fall down. And then they take three steps and they bump into something. And It takes a long time to get a, a child to walk, much less leap and jump. I mean, I have a two and a half year old who still can't jump. And he does this. This guy in this story does it immediately. It's an act of God taking decay and brokenness and death and hopelessness and bringing life. And where does this man immediately go after he receives the strength in his legs to walk and leap? He goes right to the temple. That's the first place he goes. Because up until that point, he had been forbidden to go there. And he had been unable to go there. And he goes to the very place, the first time that he's able to feel strength in his leg, to up until the point where Jesus had died and resurrected and ascended, that, had been, that temple had been the holy dwelling place of God. In other words, he goes to worship. He becomes a worshiper. And friends, isn't that what the goal of missions is? famous quote by John Piper that says missions exist because worship doesn't. That the goal of the church is not missions. The goal of the church is worship. And so we go on mission. We go out so that God might use us as a means to seek and to save the lost so that they would become worshipers. And doesn't that answer a few questions for you about what your identity is? That your identity is someone who am I? You're someone who has been created in the image of God and you belong to Him. And you exist for the sake of His glory, of finding joy in your life by bringing glory to Him. Why are you here? You are here to glorify him, to be salt and light in the world, to invest in other people's lives so that they might know Christ more deeply and that they might be redeemed. Where are you going? You are bound for the promised land, to an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. And why does it matter? Because Christ is the King. And because you are His. And He is yours. And that's why it matters. There's a meaning to life. A divine, glorious meaning to life. And that is what your life is about. That's what your identity is about. And as you begin to take this to heart, when your identity in Christ begins to frame your life, it's at that point, that joining God in his mission becomes something that's no longer an impossible, burdensome obligation. It's something that is a joyful compulsion. You long to see people saved. You long to see people found in Christ. So here's the practical part. Here's the practical stuff for you to take with you. Let me just give you five very brief points to take with you. When this begins to happen in the church and in our lives, this is what happens. Number one, we begin to invest 
our lives and the purposes of God. We begin to invest our lives in the purposes of God. Just like the early church in Acts chapter 2, and just like Peter and John here, his purposes become the, the, the magnetic part that we're drawn to. We're drawn to his purpose, purposes. And what's important in our life is no longer amassing more power or gaining more control over everything or making sure that people approve of us and accept us and like us or just pleasing our own nerve endings. That's, that's no longer the purpose of our life. The purpose of our life is to begin to invest our life in the work and the worship that God has set before us. And so that is why individuals and churches seek to not only be a light in the place that they exist, but they seek to support and pray for church planners and campus ministers and ministers to the government and, and, and those who can go to the ends of the earth where you and I can't go. And that becomes ordinary in the church. Secondly, the church begins to turn outward. They live their lives for the purposes of God, and secondly, the church begins to turn outward. The church in Acts chapter 2 not only turned outward towards the needs of those in their own community, but they also turned outward towards mission to the lost. And let's assume for a second that Peter and John also were in a church similar to the one that we find in Acts chapter 2. That's not a stretch. They would have been involved in a community that worshipped God together and gathered together and had a collective life. Well, what we see them doing here is they're going about the ordinary life that they would lead and they intersected with lost and broken people who didn't know the Lord. Uh, a few years ago, there was a, there was a naval midshipman who was working on an airplane, on an aircraft carrier. And he was preparing this aircraft to take off from the aircraft carrier. Well, by some miscommunication or terrible accident, the, the pilot of the plane added thrust to the engine and it sucked this guy off the aircraft carrier into the engine and shot him out the back of it. If there was ever a time in the sermon for that to happen, that was, the, that was it. That might have been the most compelling illustration I have ever given in the sermon. So if the jet engine sounds like that, then you know you have a problem. And that's probably what it sounded like. He shot straight through the engine and out the back, and he lived to tell about it. Probably with singed eyebrows, but he lived to tell about it. But see, the gospel does that. It pulls you in, and it pushes you out to the world to be a minister and a missionary to it. And that's what the church is called to be. 
and what they are as they are grounded in Christ. The third point is this. The grace that the church has received extends beyond the graced. The grace that you have received extends beyond those who have received grace in the church. And that's what's happening here as well. The church in Acts chapter 2 becomes such an attractive, countercultural community of redeemed sinners. And their commitment to Christ is so unflinching that their neighbors begin to notice. Their cup overflows. The grace that they have received just kind of spills over to those who are in darkness. And the Lord begins to add to their number daily those who are being saved. And the grace that Peter and John finally began to understand after so much obstinance and and confusion and and battling back and forth over conversations over who the greatest of them was that you see in the Gospels. They get to the other side of the cross and the other side of the resurrection and they are compelled to notice the lost and broken people in their midst and they impart the Gospel to them, which is the fourth point. The lost begin to get their attention. Peter and John walked this path so many times in their life, and how many times did they walk past that guy not paying any attention to him? Tons of times, and there's nothing out of the ordinary, but this time there was something different. Why? Because of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had changed their hearts. Because they knew that this man needed Jesus, that he was his only hope in life and in death, just as Jesus is your only hope in life and in death. And that's what happens when the gospel goes deep into us. The lost get our attention, and you begin to notice them in your life. And finally, the last thing is you are moved by the Christlessness of the world. There is a lot of Christlessness in the world about 37 seconds of watching the news will tell you that. And about the same amount of time meandering amongst the folks in your community will tell you that. There are people who are living according to what is right in their own eyes, worshiping a God of their own imagination, of their own creation, And what they're doing is they're simply fulfilling their job description. That's what sinners do. They sin. That's how they live. And so what we as the church are so easily prone to do is to just criticize and and bemoan how the world is falling apart and, and everything's crumbling to pieces and to criticize the way in which people live, which of course, yes, there's no question that there's ungodliness out there. And, and that ought not to be approved of. But what happens in the lives of Peter and John and what happens with Jesus see that he sits down and with sinners has a meal with them because he has compassion upon them. He has compassion 
upon the tax collectors. He has compassion upon the undesirable people. He has compassion upon those who are possessed with all sorts of addictions and evil. And what he does is he brings good news to them, that there is hope to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. There is redemption, there is forgiveness, there is righteousness, and there is the hope of glory. And he is moved, the apostles are moved, the church is moved by not just feelings of compassion, but by active movement of compassion. So I want to say one last thing, and then I'll be done. I cannot tell you how grateful I am that for the past 129 years, First Presbyterian Church of Biloxi has been here on the coast, and God has been working through all of the ups and downs and trials and tribulations and joys of those years to bring the good news and to redeem people here in Biloxi and here along the coast and throughout the state to the very ends of the earth. God has been so faithful to use this place as a missional force for decades. And I don't want you to ever take that for granted. That is a beautiful thing that it cannot be mustered up by your own native strength, but can only be done by God's work in your midst. So let's pray and let's work for the next 129 years, should God tarry that long, that the same would be true here in this church and that he would be glorified to the very end of the age. Let's pray together. God, at one time there was a, we know that there was a missionary who came to us or to those who came before us. And because you used them, we are here today and we know you. And we stand in your forgiveness and your righteousness and in your hope. Lord, we long to see the nations and our nation know the same God that we know. And so we pray that you would work in our hearts and lives to that end, that we would see those in darkness come into the light, the scales removed from their eyes, and that they would know the joy of knowing you. May we too live in that joy, and may we live outwardly as a result. And we pray this all in the name of him who came such a distance for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.